thing about wildlife is that it the thing about wildlife is the thing about wildlife thing about wildlife is the thing about wildlife is feeling of interconnectedness that it's humbling is that it's insightful intriguing you belong it's about all of us always evokes a sense of wonder doesn't matter why you're here that's the thing about wildlife Hello everyone. I am Ishika, your host on the thing about wildlife. Welcome back to another in our season 3 series that explores the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. Today I speak with Dr. Elrica de Souza, the program manager of Oceans and Coasts at the Nature Conservation Foundation. Her research interests lie in exploring plant-animal interactions in seagrass ecosystems. Elrica has documented historical declines in dugong populations in the Andaman and Nicobar archipelago and has worked towards identifying the reasons that led to that very decline. Presently, her research in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands focuses on understanding the biotic and abiotic processes that shape seagrass ecosystems and dugong behavior. Here's the episode now. The thing about seagrasses and dugongs. Hey Elrica, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm very very excited to talk to you and about your many years working in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands and now also in the Lakshadweep Islands. So I know that there's a lot to pick your brain about. So welcome to the thing about wildlife. Thank you Ishika for having me on this. So I'm going to kick us off right at the beginning like I always do and I'm very interested always in knowing what everyone's journey into the field of wildlife is and how this came to be because I think some people have a series of happy coincidences for some people they knew very early on so what was it like for you when did you first realize you were interested especially in the marine world as well and what was your journey to it so i've been interested in the marine in the marine system i think since class 10 uh, it began by just watching i think nature and discovery and uh, just watching all the different uh, documentaries out there and that's what fascinated me to uh, the marine system and i think after that i just uh, you know started finding ways in which i could pursue this as a study and then eventually into research So I think for me it was like a, a single track. I had made up my mind quite early. I think you're probably one of the first people I've spoken to who's thought about studies and research that early on, because I think even for me, I was very interested, almost like a one-track journey from reading books and seeing nature documentaries. But I had no idea about the research world and things until way into my masters. Yeah, I don't know about the research, but maybe um, I was interested in studying, like you know, knowing knowing more about the system because it was just so fascinating and there's so much unknown, right? So yeah, so then, but uh, dugongs was something that I uh, hadn't thought of at that that early. Right. <laughs> so speaking of you know just wanting to know things and study things a lot of what you've done is also focused on plant animal interactions and what from 
a lot of reading which is you know your typical e- ecology reading and studies it this also tends to be a topic that immediately makes people think of the terrestrial world so what came first for you was it your interest in working with sea grasses and the sea or was it your curiosity for these ecological interactions and themes uh, how did you figure out that you want to study this in the marine world I think for me it started off um, with an interest of the dugongs actually before dugongs um when when I had an opportunity to work in Andamans I just grabbed that opportunity it was I think sometime in 2005 when there was uh, a project assessing the the status of coral reefs i think in in the andaman and nicobar islands post the tsunami of 2004 so i grabbed that opportunity because i knew that was uh, the best option to get to an island and you know experience uh, marine the marine life first hand so uh, once i went there i think it was discussions with the um, you know the people whom i was living with some of the field assistants that actually uh, got me curious about the dugongs like they started t- telling me about this uh, mysterious animal and i t- i didn't know much about dugongs then i knew that there was an animal called dugong but i didn't know much about its biology so it was uh, the fascination towards dugongs that actually got me started and i think uh, and in the process uh, it was then the fascination with uh, the system that these uh, or the ecosystem in which these uh, animals were found in or the food that they were eating that actually led to studying sea grasses but it was always uh, dugongs that fascinated me and like you were saying i think very few people actually know what dugongs are whether it's school children or adults and uh, they're such an enigma because we know so little about them we don't read about them in textbooks or we know they don't really make it into our nature documentaries really either so tell us a little bit more about this animal which that you love so much and that you worked with now for so many years uh, tell us a bit about its biology now that you've been studying it So um, dugongs are closely related to elephants in fact some of the male uh, dugongs also have these tusks like uh, like uh, elephants like much smaller but they do have uh, tusks and they um, are found in these shallow coastal waters as they need to surface to breathe every 5 to 7 minutes and they feed mostly on sea grasses although there are these reports where uh, occasionally they could eat uh, maybe algae or sometimes sea cucumbers very rare actually that they there these anecdotal records but um, mostly sea grasses they require a lot of sea grass every day almost close to 30 kilos of sea grasses every day and uh, in lots of the studies on dugongs are actually uh, have actually been done in the australian waters where dugongs over there occur in large herds of 200 300 animals so lots of what we know about dugongs is from these areas where large herds uh, exist but as in in and in andamans and lot in lots of the parts of india also we don't have those that kind of uh, herd sizes very small herds out, out here this possibly also because uh, we don't have that much of sea grass to support uh, larger herds as well so uh, they feed they feed on a lots of lot of sea grass then uh, they give birth to a single calf once in 5 to 7 years and the young one uh, moves around along with the mother for almost a year and a half 
it also seems like we still need to know so much more about it because uh, if you're saying they're closely related to elephants, I'm guessing that they also have very interesting social structures, their behavior and individual characteristics must be quite interesting to look at. They do. But in fact, like I said, if they, if they were occurring in herds, the behaviors are quite, uh, quite different. You know, they have like, uh, uh, they almost have like these legs and all that form during, uh, during mating. But what we've seen in Andamans is mostly solitary individuals and uh, rarely, you know, two individuals together, like a mother calf or maybe a, a pair. Uh, together, so uh, then the, the behavior is quite uh, different for uh, solitary animals. So that's something that even I haven't been able to understand completely, uh, unless if maybe uh, you know sometimes uh, maybe if the population ever increases to a small extent, we might just see more than two or three animals uh, moving together. And then we might have to look at their behavior then. But with solitary animals, you just have them feeding most of the day or, or hanging around seagrass meadows, or they do something called idling where they're just like, you know, swimming aimlessly in the water. Sometimes they also just rest like a few, a few feet from the surface, closing their eyes. So that, that's all that I know from, uh, you know, first-hand observations about uh, the animal. But a lot needs to be learned about their, their social structures. And it's, it's, it's not easy to do that because sighting the animal is a big concern. And I think to, to make these kind of uh, observations, you need to constantly see animals, right? Which is very difficult in, uh, in animals especially. So tell us a bit more about these sightings. Like how do you actually end up locating or finding dugongs and how often does this happen typically? So when we uh, when we first started out, we looked for uh, feeding signs of dugongs because through literature, uh, we knew that when the dugongs fed, they left, left behind these distinct trails uh, in the water because they uproot all the sea grasses. So you have these clear like serpentine trails underwater at the bottom, at the bottom of the sea. And so we kept looking for these signs. And um, we also spoke with a lot of people who told us where they possibly had sighted uh, dewpongs recently. And I think most of them it was uh, uh, people who we know who were fishermen that actually gave us this uh, kind of information. So they, they led us to uh, uh, these sites in the Richie's Archipelago and they said, maybe you should try searching for dewpongs there. So we started by first finding sea grasses and areas where we could find the feeding trails of dewpongs. And once we found these feeding trails, I think we just continuously visited these sites every day for several days to increase our chances of uh, sighting an animal. And then one fine day, I think we just sighted our first dewbomb. And since we had never, I, I, I had no idea about you know, how large it could be with respect to us in the water and uh, what it would, what its behavior would be like. So it was, it was scary initially, but then uh, we realized that the animal was actually just doing its own thing and was least uh, bothered about us in the water. So that's how we started our, our study by you know looking for these animals to see if we can learn a bit more about about dugongs. 
Wow, that's a lot of work to see one animal and so much patience. So, okay, just to give give a bit of perspective. So, how many years have you spent studying dugongs or some aspect of their ecosystem? And how many sightings would you say you've had in this time? I think in the last fifteen years, we uh, we've probably sighted maybe I think. Uh, maybe four or five individuals and some of them we've, we've cited them repeatedly because there are some animals in certain known sites that you you know you see them in those sites quite often by often i mean like it's not so easy to cite them but if you're spending a lot of time several hours in the same site the chances are higher of citing the animal so in all these years there are just four or five sightings of uh, animals and not all the animals are comfortable in our presence. Most of them just shy away or swim, swim away. So it's just uh, two individuals actually that we were able to uh, you swim with and actually observe the animals. Oh, wow. That's so much patience. But I'm guessing it must be incredibly rewarding when it actually happens. Yes, it is. I don't know whether it's uh, it's it's uh, rewarding, but I think it's just like you know having such a big animal swimming close to you. I think that uh, that thought it takes a while to sink in, and every time every time it happens, it's it's the same feeling. Although you know it's the same animal you're seeing, but it's the same feeling every every time you see the animal. So since you're able to identify individual dugongs. What are the features that help you identify them? I know that with primates and like macaques and gibbons, which I'm working with now, it's, you know, scars, bone structures. Sometimes it's even this, it's, it's a feeling you can't really put your finger on. It's just an expression that helps me identify individuals. What is it like with dugongs? With, with dugongs, it's mostly scars, and uh, you do identify the sex of the individual as well. So you have to look at, at the the underside uh, of the individual, but it's mostly scars on the tail fluke and all the on the on the flippers. That uh, if there are these bite marks, and you actually make notes of those, and that's how you identify individuals. Okay, and in the time that you've repeatedly seen the same individuals, do you? Do you get a sense that they each individual behaves a little differently or do you sense that they might have their own personalities and their own little ways of doing things like foraging? They do have individual uh, individualistic behaviors, but then I, I, I like it's just from two animals. Yeah. And these two animals are also, I've also, uh, you know, I've seen them in areas where there's a lot of uh, uh, people around, like people swimming in those waters or snorkeling or boats moving around, people kayaking. So I think to some extent, they'll probably also be used to uh, having people around. Whereas all the animals that I've seen in remote areas, they have been extremely shy. They, you cannot get close to them at all. I think it's like all mammal behavior, right? Right. So, would you say that you have a favorite or a particularly memorable sighting with the dugong? I think uh, there been this uh, one one animal that uh, uh, I think it just loved to swim with people snorkeling in in the seagrass meadow that it was always in. 
So uh, there was once that I was alone in the uh, water swimming and I was heading back and this, this animal was actually following me back to uh, to the shallow water and the tide was receding so the water suddenly got a bit uh, shallow and uh, I think its attention was focused towards me so it almost bumped into a coral and that's when I realized like you know, this animal is like really close and just following me then it, it moved back again into a deeper water so I think that is one uh, uh, memory I always have of this dewpong following me Oh, wow. I, it's, I really hope someday I get a chance to do something or experience something like this. It just sounds just simply incredible. I, I think even through though you're describing this to me, I'm guessing that uh, if this actually happened to me, it would be, it would be hard to put to words what that felt like. True. <laughs> Okay, so tell us also, you know, since you also said that you work a lot with seagrasses and the ecosystems where these dugongs, uh, you know, live and the places that they visit. And of course, there's a lot happening. You're still working in the interim stretches of time where you don't see these individuals. So what are you typically doing on those days? And what are the other aspects of the work when you're snorkeling or diving? I think very early on in our research, we realized that uh, if we were to study uh, dugongs, uh, all our studies could not be based on uh, sighting the animals. So we figured ways in which we could just use their feeding signs and study a lot about the animals. So earlier, uh, most of our studies were to look at you know, how, um, where these animals were feeding, what was the kind of seagrasses they were selecting. So they, 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 they prefer certain species of seagrasses over, over others. So looking for these signs in certain seagrasses to then try and understand which ones they prefer. Then uh, with respect to uh, their feeding, to see how often they fed, look for fresh feeding signs and then look, uh, check and see how long the seagrasses actually take uh, you know, to come back after feeding, uh, to go back after feeding bouts. So these were the kind of uh, research that we did uh, early on. I think uh, now we've moved to um, trying to look at how these uh, the use of habitats by dugongs changes with respect to uh, anthropogenic disturbances or sometimes just natural uh, you know, natural calamities that actually wipe out these uh, seagrasses. So sometimes catastrophic events like, say, a, a cyclone, which is so common in Andaman, sometimes just ends up wiping seagrass meadows. So we are, we are now looking at how all these changes actually affect uh, the habitat used by dugongs. And with respect to uh, seagrasses, we're trying to uh, study uh, just how the meadows behave with, uh, you know, if when they are affected by climatic events or um, just generally because people don't know much about seagrasses. So just uh, how often, since they are flowering plants underwater, so how often they flower, what happens when um, 
when a meadow is destroyed completely, a seagrass meadow, how does it regenerate? Does it regenerate from seeds or whether it regenerates from vegetative uh, growth from the, the remnant shoots? So these are the kind of uh, things we're trying to study and basic questions about just seagrasses, why seagrasses exist in certain areas, why certain uh, kinds of seagrasses are uh, occur with uh, a particular other seagrass and not with every other seagrass. So these are basic questions that we are trying to un understand in, in the, the seagrass ecosystem. Wow. And it also see so I've seen very little uh, of these seagrass meadows, just a little bit here and there in some intertidal box, and they seem like a very sparse version of a terrestrial meadow. And when you said that uh, dugongs need up to thirty kgs of seagrasses in a day, for me, I'm imagining just a very vast expanse that they need to graze through. So, can you help maybe just put that? in scale uh how much seagrass do they actually need and is there enough seagrass for the dugongs right now say even the little the small population that the islands currently see so since we've been seeing just one or two animals uh you know feeding so what we've seen is that these few animals they they use like a cluster of seagrasses so they won't they tend to uh, feed in seagrasses that have several other seagrasses, uh, seagrass meadows in the near vicinity. So isolated me meadows are usually not preferred because the, du the dugongs need to move between these meadows to actually uh, be able to fulfill their daily seagrass requirements. So they, they would probably sometimes feed for like seven, eight hours in a day possibly even more because all the behavioral observations that we made on feeding have been during the daytime but they also come and feed at night so they they have to probably feed for several hours every day to um uh, to fulfill their daily requirements and uh, they also choose meadows that have these continuous stretches so while you think it's it's sparse seagrass that's actually what, what dense seagrass meadows are for these uh, preferred species of, uh, uh, of uh, for the dugong, the preferred species that the dugongs feed on. Whereas you do have the dense seagrass meadows like you would see uh, grasses on, on land, right? But those are usually the, the ones that are more fibrous and the dugongs usually don't feed, uh, prefer these uh, these species. So these, these smaller, what seems like sparse seagrasses also have the the ability to regenerate really quick. So if they're feeding, uh, if the bombs continuously feed, within a, within a week to 10 days, these seagrass meadows come back. So uh, so it's the, the, the low numbers of dugongs, uh, the fact that there is uh, these clusters of uh, seagrasses and the, uh, the high regeneration of uh, seagrasses also all these three coupled together actually help uh, uh, provide or sustain this dugongs, the dugong, the present dugong population in Andaman. Oh that's very cool thanks that uh, I think that clears up a lot of what I was a little unsure about and uh, I'm sure that was very helpful to those listening as well. Considering there are so many different clusters and so many different species of seagrasses, I'm guessing that the dugongs also move across very large distances across the archipelago. Is that true? Possibly. 
the thing is, but what we've been seeing is that uh, we've been seeing the same animals in these uh, clusters for the last like several years, like seven or eight years that we've been observing them. So they still, we still need to learn more about this, about the movement of uh, animals between uh, clusters. And hopefully that's something we're able to do in the coming years. I hope we manage to find out more sometime soon. And uh, I'll of course ask you to come back and tell us more if you do manage to get that uh, bit of information as well in the years to come. I'd also like now to zoom out a little bit to the entire Random and Nicobar Archipelago because you have personally traveled most of this stretch and you've explored so many of its coasts. So could you describe these journeys and your inquiries for us, considering, you, like you said, you also started your journey in the Andamans uh, doing that coral reef survey, which also must have taken you across a lot of these coasts and you continue to do so. So what are things like from north to south as you move through these islands? Mm, it's difficult to say. I think uh, the entire journey uh, across the coast has been uh, lovely for me. And every time I uh, I traveled across the coast, it, it has been a new experience. Like each time, uh, you know, finding uh, areas with uh, finding newer seagrass meadows. So I think every experience traveling across the uh, the entire coastline has been new for me. And each time it's been exciting, searching, uh, you know, finding a new seagrass meadow, finding a new site with uh, dugong feeding trails, or just finding something totally new uh, apart from seagrasses and, and dugongs, maybe a new, uh, uh, you know, finding some sighting a new animal in the sea or uh, some coral reefs or some creature spawning so every, every time it's been it's been it's, it's been lovely and, and and exciting it just seems like so many incredible things to have had a chance to swim with look at underwater and like you were saying we we still know very little about so many of these creatures which are so gorgeous so beautiful and i'm sure uh, have very intricate and interesting ecologies as well uh, how how wonderful so i also wanted to ask you about island systems in general you've worked a lot in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands and now also in the Lakshadweep Islands uh, you know you have projects running there as well what makes the islands and their coasts different from say the coasts of mainland India for example what is it that's special about islands that draws you to them I think first between both the island systems Lakshadweep and Andaman they're two Two totally different uh, systems. You know, Lakshadweep being an an atoll, uh, and Andaman being you know this uh, continuation of a submerged mountain uh, mountain chain. So they, they're completely different in um, uh, in their structure, in the kind of species that you find there, the diversity, even the the the, the terrain underwater. The, you know, the seascape is completely different. Like in, in Lakshadweep, you have a lagoon and then the edge of the lagoon then you know goes down into the deeper water and, and, and you have the reefs on that on that uh, edge. And then there's a sand at the bottom. Whereas in, in Andamans, you have um, 
uh, you know, it's almost like a continuation of the land going into the sea. And then uh, in some areas, there are mangroves, some areas, there are these uh, small cliffs underwater, uh, sometimes you just have these rocky outcrops. So it's, it's completely uh, different. And what uh, I think what's fascinating about island systems is that everything that uh, uh, happens on the land, you see its effect on the sea. Like, uh, I think uh, one, one, one thing that, you know, this image is always there in my, uh, in my mind of, um, if you look at, in the Andamans especially, if you look at the, the western side of the islands that have the coast that have these tall, uh, tall trees along, along the coast, due to the effect of the, of the wind, the southwest monsoon, you have all the, the tops of the of these trees at an angle. And if you look at an area, you will almost see these ridges or uh, in these uh, in these uh, trees, you know, like uh, I know it's very difficult uh, for me to explain, but from a distance, you see uh, these trees at an angle, all their tops at an angle, and these distinct ridges almost like where the wind has cut through, uh, cut through. And in these same areas where you see that on land, you'll find a similar thing underwater. So underwater, you'll have these, uh, these, these uh, crests and troughs. And, uh, and if, you, if you've not seen one from the other, you immediately know if you look, at, if you look underwater and then you look above, you know what to expect on, on land. So I think these, these, this thing about the islands is fascinates me. And that's what makes them also so, um, so sensitive right? and so vulnerable to any uh, change. Because whatever we do up there actually uh, finds, finds its place uh, or finally ends up in the sea. That's just incredibly cool what you just described. And I had never heard anyone talk about how interconnected both these systems are. And I think we also have this discourse of completely separating land from water. And I think that's also true in a very social way within the wildlife community as well, where the marine folk form a different bubble and the terrestrial folk form a different bubble and no one talks to each other. But it seems like considering a lot of the conservation battles we are facing as well we really ought to be talking to each other and knowing how these things are affecting both places at once um, have you in all of these years seen any such particular example where uh, perhaps constructions or developmental changes or land use changes have affected some sites where you're working Yes, actually, in the I think in the last uh, four or five years, we've been seeing more coastal constructions happening. In fact, one uh, one incident that I can talk about is about uh, a site where you know we, which was a feeding ground of uh, dugongs, and some years back they decided to build a, a a jetty for the fishing boats in this area. So immediately, as an effect of this, in the next year. We had lots of uh, sedimentation on the on these seagrass meadows, and because of this continuous drilling sound, the dugong that dugongs that actually came and fed in those sites during the day had stopped coming, and they would only come in at night. So these were these were things that uh, we couldn't actually measure or you know, record these uh, changes, but these were things that we observed. 
so this was this was one 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 distinct change that i seen in the in the last uh, few years happening and you see it you see all the in areas where there is uh, runoff from the land it finally ends up on the seagrass meadows so in those areas you find seagrasses with lots of algae growing on them or sometimes just smothered with the uh, with uh, sediment and struggling to come up above above the sediment these are things nobody ever thinks about and talks about i think when you're looking at even what we put in our textbooks or what is out there in social media about conservation challenges and battles that are being faced by the marine sphere we rarely go beyond talking about coral reef bleaching and clearly there's a lot more happening and there's more than just corals underwater so i'm really glad we're able to have this conversation and put a bit of info about street grasses and uh, the other kinds of things that are happening underwater out there what what else do you think we could do to fix this knowledge gap you know so few people know about dugongs or even their existence i would uh, i would guess i think just talking to people about these animals like i've seen um, you know it may be a small change but i've seen change in the in the years that we've been in uh, in andamans like certain islands that we were there every year you know trying to study sea grasses and dugongs and people start questioning and you talk to them and explain to them what you're doing so in, in these sites we uh, like people have gone from not knowing what dugongs are to now in some of these areas they almost feel proud that they have dugongs only left in in their areas so i think it's all about talking to people and telling them what's actually there sharing knowledge sharing information with um, with people that can actually help because most of the time like people who are you know even into the construction of some of these uh, uh, coastal uh, in construction in these coastal areas they aren't aware of what's underwater because what you can't see you don't know right so it's it's about talking to that makes a lot of sense and it's also very heartening to know that people are now proud of living close to where dugongs uh, visit and live and that's how how wonderful to have that knowledge available um you know one story i keep remembering actually from uh, one of the first internships i did in goa itself was uh, in this uh, sort of marine sphere which and this is something that always makes me happy to think about how we do environmental education and outreach where i was supposed to go to a school and do this complicated presentation on sea turtles and the humpback dolphin and just my title slide had a person diving underwater and this little I put his hand up and he said hey how did you even take this photo and how is this person breathing underwater and the entire time we just ended up talking about how diving works and you know underwater gear and that somehow became such a fun way to talk about marine life and people suddenly felt so proud because earlier they had no clue of that there was all of this life underwater they had only looked at it from the top and they didn't know you could actually see things if you went inside and I think this is so wonderful to actually tell people here's what is actually there under the surface that you live right next to. Yeah, true. In fact, a lots of uh, uh, the textbooks also, right, don't talk about uh, what's there the, about the marine life at all. So 
the children are not even thought about it. But I, I see lots of girls now in uh, in Andamans are actually getting their kids to experience the life uh, or the marine life or see what's there in, around around them and uh, make that as part of their uh, learning rather than learning something that has been designed by someone in the you know the mainland who and it, it it's so disconnected right from uh, from what they're actually seeing. So I think uh, yeah just getting children to know about it, teaching children about what's there, getting them to observe. I think these are things that will, uh, that are eventually going to make the change. That's, that's lovely. And it's great to know that it's already started happening. What is it that you think the fate of dugongs and seagrasses is in the near future? I know this is a really hard question and uh, we also, it's probably very hard to know exactly what their conservation status is, but we now know that there is the species recovery program for dugongs, which implies that they're in trouble or that they should be in larger numbers, perhaps. What's, what's your take on that whole situation and where do you think they are headed in the years to come? We first need to probably define what we would what we would mean by recovering, trying to recover a species, right? For us, for such a slow, you know, slow breeder like the dugong, if if our recovery is in terms of numbers, it's going to take several years for that. But at the same time, we do we have recorded a few mother calf pairs around the islands, which means that you know there's still some amount of breeding uh, happening. But it, it, it's going to be a long time for those numbers to uh, to increase. And in that time, we have to make sure that all, you know, all accidental mortality is uh, is taken care of. There cannot be any accidental mortality that happens with respect to demand. That's and, and that's difficult, I think. So the... It seemed the chances for the dugong seemed quite bleak, it's even in other places on the on the mainland, like the Gulf of uh, Manar, Gulf of Kutch. Although dugongs, they do have sporadic uh, sightings, but the the pressures are just too high in all, all these uh, sites. So um, uh, I think what we can potentially do is uh, make sure that you know these these threats are reduce so completely removed of these systems and then you just have to wait and watch to see how the animals are coping but at the same time i also feel that you know either see the seagrass meadows and the dugongs are actually quite resilient like you know any change that happens the species adapt like like i told you like you know the incident of how because of the noise during the day, the species were then feeding at uh, at night. So they do they do have these uh, they do adapt to uh, these uh, changes. But it's just these you know these sudden threats where, they, where there's nothing that the animal or even the habitat can do or cope with. That's what actually affects these uh, species. So at the end of it, I think it will take several years if we if we. Uh, if we want to see an increase in numbers, but if recovery means just providing a, a you know a, a safe habitat for the species, or um, um, ensuring that the, the habitats persist in an area, I think that that's possible even now to uh, to work on and make sure that that's available for the species. Thanks, Elrika. I think uh, that's a very balanced uh, outlook as well, where we should ideally be still working towards preserving the few that we have and 
hoping that we create an environment that can help the new individuals that are coming into the system survive to adulthood and carry on that population even if it takes time what about you personally do you you've now been working with the dugongs for 15 years do you see yourself continuing to do so in the time to come have your or have your interests kind of expanded uh, are you looking at things apart from sea grasses and dugongs as well of late so i i do continue some of the the studies on on dugongs and at the same time like uh, like the start we talked about plant and animal interactions and since my interests have always uh, have been on seeing how large herbivores actually affect the the systems that uh, they inhabit so uh, that's something that i have been uh, working on late so in in lakshadweep i uh, have also been part of the research on turtles and sea grasses and to look at how uh, sea grasses in the lakshadweep actually are how uh, how they are affected by the grazing pressures of uh, of green sea turtles there and in andamans i continue a similar uh, kind of uh, research so um, yeah the research on dugongs and sea grasses still continues and every time there are new questions because the systems are uh, changing uh, quite uh, rapidly as well so there are new questions that uh, uh, we tend to ask as well in these systems how incredible to know that right from your teens you knew what you wanted to do you wanted to ask questions just like the ones you're doing now and you've been doing it uh, with such focus and uh, i've just really enjoyed learning about the dugongs talking to you and it's also so exciting to speak to someone like yourself you know the our audience can't really see this happening but your eyes light up when you talk about the dugongs and you're so happy to share these experiences and i love talking to people like this and having these kind of conversations so thank you so much for doing this with us you're welcome <laughs> join us again next week where i am joined by marine ecologist and former guest tanmay wag together we speak with james and babu two citizens of the andamans who have spent the last decade working as field and research assistants on a myriad of projects as part of the andaman and nicobar environment team Tune in to hear their stories and opinions next week. Thanks for listening.